Well, good morning, everyone. Um, in a moment, we're going to talk about one of the most extraordinary periods in the life of Paul, uh, his voyage to Malta, a shipwreck. I hope uh, none of you are in that kind of situation right now. And we're going to see uh, what we can learn about the scope of our ministry um, day by day by day, under pressure, in the places we normally find ourselves, wherever those may be, with three children at school gates, in a care home, out at work, wherever God places you day by day, week by week in the world. But uh, before we go there, I've been asked just a little bit of, about, about myself and about where I work, because there are a lot of new humans in the church, um, maybe some androids as well, um, since I last spoke here. As some of you know, I used to work in advertising, uh, so you can trust every word you hear from me this morning, and indeed you can trust every picture you see. There you go, there's the joke. <laughs> um, I spent uh, 10 years working in advertising in London, New York, and I, and I don't know how, how you feel about what you do every day, whether you really like it or it's really, really difficult, but I absolutely loved it. I love the pace, bless you. I love the, I love the, love the people, I love the creativity, and the lunches. The lunches were fantastic. But uh, my testimony is this, that I saw God... God, working in that advertising agency day by day, week by week, doing amazing things. I saw him answer prayer on prayer on prayer. I saw him draw people to himself over time. I saw him heal someone on the 10th floor of a Madison Avenue advertising agency in the middle of the day. I saw him change the heart of probably the most difficult client in the world. Uh, I saw him guide me through career disappointments, that happens to most of us, through character failure, and through romantic catastrophes, uh, with the emphasis on the plural. And uh, what did I learn? I learned that God can work through anyone, in any place, whatever we're doing, wherever we are. And now I work for uh, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, uh, where we're very much focused on today's theme, really. And when I'm asked to talk about the London Institute, I normally use the example of one of the greatest of all post-war British heroes, a man guaranteed to save the world once every three years. And that, of course, is Bond, James Bond. <laughs> now, Bond, James Bond, is not widely acclaimed in Christian circles, for reasons which I hope you're aware of. Um, but... Uh, I would submit to you that there's probably not a man in this room who has not at some point imagined himself to be Bond, James Bond. Yes, I can see a lot of women laughing at that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we, have our, we have our illusions, we men. But actually, I do have some evidence uh, to back that up. And here's uh, some evidence. Most of you think that Johnny's gone on holiday, but he's actually doing a screen test at Pinewood this week. Of course, most of us are not very much like Bond, James Bond. Most of us are a bit more like Johnny English, sort of. <laughs> Still, Bond does have many qualities worthy of praise. He is courageous, persevering, resourceful. He's always the master of technology and never its slave. He is decisive and he is patriotic. He may, like Samson, sleep with the enemy, but unlike Samson, he never gives away secrets critical to national security. He is strong, agile, multi-skilled, intelligent, witty, cultured, and honest. 
He's also a male chauvinist pig, an emotional desert, and a spiritual black hole. But apart from that, apart from that, when Bond, James Bond, goes on his missions to save the world, five things are true. He's properly briefed. He's properly trained. He's properly resourced. He is properly supported, and he is commissioned. He is sent out with authority to pursue the mission that he has been given. And when we at LICC ask ourselves whether overall in the UK and indeed globally in the uh, church, adult Christians feel themselves to be properly briefed, trained, resource supported and commissioned on the whole, they say they are not. And that's why a man called Stott, John Stott, widely regarded as one of the greatest uh, Church of England people of the 20th century, founded the London Institute in 1982. He's the one on the right, by the way. Helping people to live out the Word of God where you are day by day. Empowering Christians to make a difference where there are, and also coming alongside church leaders to help us all do it. We have a range of resources, lots on the website that's free, and uh, including uh, the book that uh, was held up. Um, my mother regarded this as the best book ever written. And... Uh, you need to know that my mother was always right. <laughs> so now we turn to this extraordinary period in Paul's life and see what this has to say to us about where God has us day by day at the moment. We're looking at Acts 27, and Paul, who is a Jewish convert to Jesus, is on his way to Rome to stand trial before Caesar, something he's actually really looking forward to, to do because he wants to share the gospel in Rome. And he's being escorted there by a centurion called Julius, who has um, actually really clearly likes Paul. He's allowed him to go and visit friends along the journey and so on. And we pick up the story um, at verse 9 in this journey. So here it is. This is the living word of the living God. Amen. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed through the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. And because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun 
No stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Just putting it out there. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to, to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After this, after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were there to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Phew. Well, this is a rich, rich passage, and there are parallels that we might explore between Paul and Jonah, two men in boats in a storm on the Mediterranean. 
and both charged with communicating the gospel about Jesus Christ to the, to the capital city of the dominant empire of their time. And there are parallels we might explore between Paul in a boat on the storm and the disciples of Jesus in a boat on the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And it's right to make those parallels, and I encourage you to look at that uh, later when you review this passage. But this is also a story, it's a narrative set in a particular place at a particular time with particular people. Those people trying to work out, as we do every day, how do I respond in this situation? What does it mean to follow Jesus here? And now with narratives, the first thing we're meant to do is to look carefully at what's going on in the story itself before we make connections with the wider, with the wider book or indeed the, the whole story that God gives us in the Bible, the revelation of God in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so here, as probably you noticed, the Holy Spirit has given us an enormous amount of detail about this voyage. Now, Paul's been shipwrecked three times before. We know nothing about those except that it happened. He goes on all these journeys between all these places, and we know virtually nothing about them. It's like, I went there, then I went there, then I went here, and I went there, and so on. Nothing. Why has the Holy Spirit given us all this detail? And of course, in the Bible, actually, the Bible often doesn't give us very much detail. When you think about lots of the stories compared with the things that we know when we read a novel or we read in a newspaper, we know very little. God says to Abraham, go Go kill your son. Okay. <laughs> Goes on a three-day journey. What do we know about what Abraham is thinking over those three days? The answer is absolutely nothing. What does Ruth look like? We don't know. There's lots of detail we don't know because it's not seemed important to the Holy Spirit to give it to us. So why is he giving us all this detail here? So what I want to focus on today is what can we learn from this text about the scope of our ministry under pressure? What can we learn about the scope of God's support for us in the storms that we face? Well, as you know, usually in the book of Acts, we see Paul in short encounters with people in the marketplace speaking on Mars Hill. But imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that you are Paul and you're in a boat with 273 people who don't know Jesus. Um, sailors, soldiers, other prisoners, for months. Just you and Luke and Aristarchus. Three Christians, 273 people who don't know Jesus. Less than 1% of the population. Here you are, a minority, just as many of you are in your daily context, perhaps in a hall of residence or in a house share or at a workplace or at the school gate or in a residential home. And you're, ri you're right there, surrounded primarily by people who don't know Jesus. So again, imagine you're Paul. You've built a good relationship with the centurion, Julius. He's given you favor to see your friends. And then one day you're praying and God gives you a vital message for the senior management team, the centurion, the pilot, and the owner of the boat. So you're a prisoner, but you have already been in three shipwrecks. You have reason to be nervous about sea travel. But you're also just an itinerant teacher and a maker of tents. But you are convinced that the professional sailors are going to take a course of action that will lead to catastrophe. So you speak up. And by speaking up, you're challenging three types of power. The centurion, the power of the state. The pilot, the power of expertise, the consultant, if you like. The owner, 
the power of money, the power of ownership, and they ignore your advice, as often happens. Ever happened to you? Got a really good idea? Somebody says, I don't think so. We're not in control, are we? Others make decisions, and sometimes we just, we can see it's not going to be good, but we have to kind of go along with it. And Paul's advice doesn't actually solve the problem of the danger to the ship because there's no convenient port to winter in. Now, what's going on here? Paul has been given an insight, a word of knowledge, if you like, into the future by God. Let's be clear. The experts recognize there's a risk, but they think it's a risk worth taking. Paul is certain this ship is going to go down. And that certainty, I think, comes from above. God speaks to us in a whole variety of ways, doesn't he? He sometimes speaks to us, we get, we get this conviction, a sense um, that he's, you know, I just know this is from God. Or we may get a, a direction from him in, in an obviously supernatural way. An angel, perhaps. A dream. For some people, they've heard an audible voice. Or somebody comes to you, if you like, and they have a word for you. You're praying with somebody, they have a word for you. And you know it's from God. Or again, you, just, you may be impressed by, by God's supernatural spirit working through your own reading of God's supernaturally inspired Bible. What's interesting is here the word of God comes in a non-religious context. It's, it's not happening in a church service. It's not happening in a connect group. It's happening in a boat. It's happening in a pagan workplace. Where does God speak? Where can he speak? Anywhere he chooses. Now, interestingly here, when Paul makes his view clear at this stage, he doesn't use any overtly religious language to do so. Obviously, Julius and the crew and the other prisoners know Paul is a Christian because that's why he's there. But he doesn't say God says or Jesus says at this time. We don't always necessarily have to say that. In the end we do, but we don't always have to start there, do we? So God gives Paul wisdom that is ultimately for the benefit of the whole crew because God does not need a boat to get Paul to Rome. God can whistle up a whale from the Atlantic. He's got previous on this. And this whale can dump him on an Italian beach at the mouth of the Tiber, just like he did with Jonah, if you like. But God is concerned for Paul's companions, and God offers information that will limit the commercial impact on the owner. You may lose the ship, but you won't lose the tackle, the cargo, or the people. Well, does God care about the material well-being of the people that we serve? Does he care about the economic flourishing of organizations? Well, yes, he does, and I think it's always been so. Let me tell you a um, spectacular story, because this is a spectacular story. A man I know called uh, Colin Draper. He was working in a uh, plastic extrusion molding factory. Not sure what one of those is, but that's where he was working. He was a production manager there, not the managing director, and they had no orders coming in. And uh, no orders means no money, and et cetera, et cetera. Might have to close the factory. It's so this is, a, this, is, this is a bad moment. So one day Colin um, comes down from his office into the workshop. The workshop has 12 workbenches in it. And he comes down, he pulls up a chair next to the first bench, and he puts his hand on the chair. The, the workers 
men in this case, are, are standing around, puts his hand on the workbench and prays that this workbench would get busy in front of everyone. Then he stands up, picks up the chair, goes to the second workbench, does exactly the same through all 12. You've kind of got to know that God's calling you to do that, haven't you? And he does it for six working days in a row. And on the seventh day, the factory burned down. Just kidding. <laughs> Although, you know, <laughs> they'd have got the insurance, wouldn't they? They got 72 orders in, in one day, the most orders they'd ever had in the history of the company, as I recall it. An amazing thing. Now, we see this concern for, for the physical right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight. What does God do there? He creates a physical context for human beings to flourish in. There's, there's delicious, nutritious food. There's running water, this beautiful environment. There's a plethora of wildlife to enjoy. There's purposeful work to be done. There's fellowship with him. Yes, you know, we rebel, but what's the mission that he gives Abraham? Through you, he says to Abraham, all nations will be blessed. We're called to be a channel of blessing, a channel of grace. And then when he sends the people as a punishment into exile, what, is, what does God say through the prophet Jeremiah? He says to the people, seek the peace and prosperity. Shalom in Hebrew, one word. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. There they are praying for the shalom, the prosperity, the peace of their enemies. And we are called too, are we not, to pray for the peace and prosperity of Watford, peace and prosperity of whichever town you live in, the peace and prosperity of whichever organisations you're part of. But back, back to Paul. Paul's job is to speak up for the welfare of others. But he does not win the argument. Our job is to speak for the benefit of others. We may not win the argument. You may believe the policy is wrong, the protocol misguided, the praxis downright dangerous, but it may not change. Not, not many of us in charge. I imagine a number of you are managers or leaders. Some of you may even own an organisation. Some of you may be the CEO of an organisation. But unless you're one of the, you know, right, right at the top, you in the end don't get the final call. So we may not be able to change anything, but speaking out is important. Why? For the longer term, as we see here. And so you set sail and you're Paul. What is the scope of your ministry now that you know that this boat is going down and you with it. That's your situation. We are going into disaster. I wonder if you're in a time of pressure, what's the scope of your ministry and prayer now? I wonder what we, we prayed in mid-March 2020 when we could perhaps see the storm coming that was coming. And in this context, the storm does come and it rages for days and the crew do what the professionals know to do. They follow best practice. They throw the cargo overboard, but it's not enough and they despair for life. And what do you do if you're Paul? This business is going down. This business is going into liquidation. 
No one gets that part. I just got to work on it a bit harder. <laughs> this, um, anyway, you're going down with this. Do you pray for a whale to pop up and pick you and Luke and Aristarchus up? Is that what you pray for? Make me safe? In the midst of this terrible storm with the boat heaving and the waves crashing and the wind howling and the sun blotted out from the sky and your body being lurched from side to side and your stomach in your cranium, do you have any space in your heart for anyone else? It's hard, isn't it, when we're under pressure, when we're suffering, to actually, what about everyone else? What about anyone else? What about someone else? It's hard. But what does Paul do? He, he prays for everyone's mortal lives as well as their eternal lives. He intercedes holistically. He encourages them emotionally. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, I don't think he reminds them that they ignored his advice before to make them feel guilty. See, it's all your fault. I told you, we're all gonna die. But I feel much better about the fact that we're all gonna die because I was right. <laughs> he doesn't tell them for that reason, to make them feel guilty. He tells them to strengthen their confidence in what he is now saying. The prophet speaks and is ignored often. Afterwards, people go back and where we should have listened, God told us. So he witnesses clearly to them because he tells them the source of his extraordinary confidence in verse 23. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Notice that the angel tells Paul that God has given him the lives of all who sail with you. I wonder who's sailing with you. It's obvious that Paul has been praying for the people, if you like, on, on, on his front line, for their physical rescue, as well as, no doubt, their eternal salvation. He is not like Jonah, as you may recall, not bothering to pray for the sailors in his boat. He's not, if you like, in a team in an ICU with a panicked, you know, panicked, frazzled manager just praying to get through the next 12 hours, please. Paul is praying for everyone. He's doing what he can, which is all that God ever asks of us. Leave the rest to him. Vicky is a, a, a Brompton, uh, Brompton Hospital respiratory physio, and uh, she was deployed during the pandemic to the ICU. And um, she used to work half-time, part-time job, and now she was suddenly working six days a week, not even five days a week, six days a week. And, you know, it's overflowing with people. And uh, she's standing there in full PPE, holding a young, young man, young patient's hand, with the oxygen blowers on full blast, really loud, silently praying that the Lord would heal him and that he would save his soul. And it wasn't the first time that she would do that. And... And it wouldn't be the last. And not everyone got better. And sometimes you don't know because they move them to another part of the hospital. Anyway, a few weeks later, a friend uh, asks Vicky, did you treat this particular person? And Vicky, as a professional, says, I am not at liberty to disclose that information. 
And her friend says, well, he got better and he's become a Christian. Take Vicky out of the ICU and maybe that young man dies apart from Jesus. Take Paul and his companions off that boat and maybe 273 people die. Take the Christian out of any context and maybe it actually changes quite a bit. Uh, Valerie is a, he's a plumber, he's in this church. Um, and uh, he's, he's an instrument, big, big man, and he's in the peace business. Um, so, you know, the water is coming through the ceiling, it's running down the walls, it's just ruined the rug that you, you, you got uh, for a wedding present, and he knocks on the door, rings the bell, and he's standing there, and he's smiling, and you're thinking, why is this man smiling? My house is crumbling before me. <laughs> anyway, so Valerie says, it's going to be okay. I'm here now. One day he goes to visit a man, um, not, not in quite such a deep crisis mode, and they get into conversation, as you do. And while they're talking, he suddenly notices like a shadow pass over this man's face. Just a twinge of pain, if you like. And he asks him, are you okay? And the man, a perfect stranger, says to him, well, uh, I've just been diagnosed with, with lung cancer. And so Valerie says, can I pray for you? Because God loves you. Apparently he often says that. Can I pray for you? Because God loves you. And then he prays. And Valerie said that you, can, you could see the peace just flooding this stranger's face. Take the Christian out of the story. Take you out of the story. And maybe things really aren't quite the same. Like Paul, we do not choose our circumstances. And Paul, curiously, was exactly where he was meant to be, though he probably wouldn't have chosen those circumstances either. But he was in the right place. We can't choose our circumstances, but we can choose whether we consciously, intentionally involve God there. God, in a sense, has also entrusted us with those places. We seek the shalom of those places. So Paul brings encouragement. But again, interestingly, he doesn't name Jesus again. He doesn't name the particular God he follows and serves. But he does make it clear that this is the God who is guaranteeing his safety and the safety of the passengers' crew. So what is he doing? He's simply bearing witness of God's action in his life, of what he has experienced about, about Jesus. Does he lay out the, the whole gospel in all its fullness at this moment? Well, apparently not. But might people be intrigued? Might they wonder, is this God real? Might they come to Paul and ask him later and ask him about it? Or might they wait to see if they survive, to see if this God's word can be trusted? We don't know. Paul is bearing witness, sharing what the good news means to him on this day. In many ways, very simply. Somebody asks you, how do you put up with that bad-tempered boss? How on earth did you get all that work done with those three children under your feet all day? And sometimes people see things in us, in tough circumstances, that we don't see ourselves. Again, um, Vicky, this respiratory physio I mentioned, it was the 
middle of the wave, and uh, she was doing uh, these 12-hour shifts and not getting a break. You may or may not know this, uh, because at that time, they often didn't get a break, even to eat or drink, because the PP, the, the personal protection equipment, was so valuable and so in short supply that if you leave the ICU, you've got to take it off and you've got to put new stuff on afterwards. So a lot of people just toughed it out for 12 hours. Amazing. And she was, you know, exhausted and so on and so forth. And at team meetings, she'd share about how hard it had been. And then one day, a colleague came, comes up to her and said, oh, Vicky, you're so inspiring. And Vicky thinks, this person needs to go to the mental health unit. <laughs> you must be nuts. What are you saying? You know I've been in tears every day. And the woman says, but you are so inspiring. There's something about you. It's not just about putting on a brave face. Somewhere underneath all that exhaustion was a deeper, a deeper stability, a deeper joy that communicated it to people in, in those very difficult times, in that very difficult place. And I asked her, well, how did that happen? You know, did you have a nine-hour quiet time after you had your, did your 12-hour shift? You know, what's going on? And she told me that every day before going into her shift, she didn't, she didn't have time to have a long, quiet time. She didn't, because she, she'd get home, she'd try to make herself some food, she was exhausted, she'd go to sleep, she'd get up, have breakfast, go and do another shift. She said, every day, I'd say to the Lord, Lord, give me what I need for this. And every day, she would listen in one season to a particular worship song before getting to work. Some of you may know, it's called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me by City of Light. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labour on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. And that was real for her. Christ lives in us by his Spirit. If you know him, you can't get the Spirit out of you. And he shines through weakness and he shines through distress. And God had done something in Vicky's life that made them pay attention. Well, the more you involve God, obviously, the richer your testimony. So what does Paul do? He, he encourages emotionally, he witnesses clearly, and then he strengthens them physically by encouraging them to eat, eat, something they hadn't done for days. Now, I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Well, we, we care for people's physical well-being. We, we know to do that. But often in lots of normal situations, that may not be so obvious. You know, the colleague, have you noticed? Hasn't been able to get away from the reception desk for four hours. The beleaguered mum at the school gate. The carer unseen at home day after day. Or the fellow student, perhaps, who finds themselves with 6,000 words left to write on the influence of Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophy on the music of Harry Styles and they need to get it done by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Can I get you a sandwich, a coffee, a cold towel, a Coke, eight gallons of Red Bull? So here is Paul caring for the heart, the mind, the body, the spirit. And then Paul does something which in our politically correct times might seem rather odd. He prays in public. He says grace in public. 
couple of years ago, my wife Katrina was working in hospital theatres and uh, on the Sunday before her Monday shift, she got this strong intimation from God that um, something bad was going to happen the next day. Does God still warn his people, like he did Paul, that something bad is going to happen? Something bad is going to happen the next day. So she told me about it. We prayed and she prayed and she goes into work. And um, after about an hour and a half, the theatre team that she was working with were all called into, into uh, the staff room and they were told this by one, um, by one of the managers, that one of her colleague's six-year-old son had fallen out of a first-floor window and had died. And uh, the person who delivered that news said something like, and, and do pray for her, which I think is bold enough. And Katrina, at that particular moment, said, let's do it now. And right there and then she prayed in an NHS staff room with a mixture of Christians and people of other faiths and agnostics and atheists, no doubt. But that moment she took a stand to say, in this unimaginable pain, in this bewildering situation, there is a God who cares and we can share this with him. In this situation, when all the brilliant skills of the NHS have been tried and have, in this case, not been enough, there is a place to go. No one came up afterwards and complained. But Paul is not just giving thanks here. He is modelling his faith in God's rescue. He's saying, I am calm enough to eat. I believe it is worth eating because I am not going to die. So I need my strength. Eating in this context is a sign of trust in God. And so when he persuades them to eat, when they actually eat, they're do doing something that at some level is a step of faith. I trust enough in Paul's words to eat because maybe I'm not going to die. Paul invites them to live in line with his trust in the king of the universe, to believe a little, to look to God, however thin their faith, however vague their grasp of who this God is or what he might do. And then there's something important about the words that uh, Luke uses here. I'm sure you picked it up in verse 35. He says, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and then and began to eat. Now, these are the same words that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, used to describe Jesus breaking bread at the Last Supper and on the Emmaus Road. Exactly the same words. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is feeding on Christ. What do we do? Well, hopefully every day, but particularly when we travel, what do we do? We feed on Christ. And finally, Paul protects them practically. When the crew try to leave, he gives the centurion a piece of advice that this time the centurion pays attention to. Stop the sailors abandoning the ship. Last time he was ignored, this time he's listened to. So here is Paul. Yes, he is under life-threatening pressure, but even under immense stress, he 
He doesn't lose sight of the mission that God's given him in the place that he finds himself. I wonder if we all have such a kind of big, multi-dimensional vision for the, the, the impact that we might make in the boats that we're in over time, in good times as well as bad times. I wonder if our kids really know that, that what are they? They are princes and princesses of the king of the universe in the corridors and classrooms of their schools, sent to carry the fragrance of Christ into those places. I wonder, do we know if we're a student? Do we know if we're a mum at the school gate or a dad at the school gate? Do we know, really, if we're a barista or a labourer or an executive or a plumber that this is what God has for us, to represent him and carry his fragrance into the places we find ourselves, seeking the best for people and the organisations they're in? Looking for wisdom from above, because it's better than the stuff I've got. <laughs> Don't lots of organizations need wisdom and taking prayerful initiatives for others, for their physical, emotional, spiritual welfare. Paul was in a boat with a load of people, 275 people. I wonder what boat are you in? Some of you are in bigger boats. If you're teachers, you might be in a boat with 1,200 people. Some of you are in smaller boats. Who's with you? What's on their minds and hearts? What's God doing there? And what might he want you prayerfully to do? And of course, we do not go alone. Acts 27 doesn't just give us this extraordinary picture of the scope of our ministry, this rich ministry. It gives us an insight into the faithfulness of the God who sends us there. This is the God who sends with purpose. He grants favour among long believers. Pray for favour. He gives wisdom from above when wisdom beyond human computation is actually needed. This is the God who communicates whatever the barriers, however dark the day, however terrible the storm, sends an angel. That's how important it is for God to communicate. He responds in prayer, making it clear what he's going to do. He strengthens his people by his word and his very presence. He keeps his promises. Not one person is lost. And he fulfills his bigger purposes. The gospel will be heard in Rome as God intended. This God, this God of Paul, this is our God. This is your God, your Lord. The God of Paul and Lydia of Mary and Martha, of Vicky and Katrina and Valerie. This is, this is our God. The one who's called us and sends us. Emmanuel. I wonder what needs changing in the places you find yourself? Whose salvation might you specifically pray for? And what help do you need from the one who loves to help his people.